When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Well, as we're recording this on the 27th of August 2019, the yield on two-year government bonds in the United States is 1.55%, and the yield or the interest you'll earn on a 10-year bond or treasury is 1.51%. That's an inverted yield curve. The 10-year rate is below the two-year rate and well below the Fed's policy rate of 2%. So does that mean a recession is on the way? We'll look at that today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. So it is the normal case that an inverted yield curve leads eventually to a recession. It's all to do with the interest rates paid for bonds. So you buy a bond, you get a certain percentage back each year. And it fluctuates as bonds are traded for different prices on the secondary market after they've been issued. So if you buy the bond cheap, you'll get a better interest rate or yield. So when bonds are in demand, prices go up, the yields go down. And bonds are issued in varying lengths by the uh, Treasury in the United States. They've got one year, two years, actually six months, uh, five years, 10 years, even 30 years. And the longer the duration, the better the return you expect because you're taking a bigger risk because who knows what's going to happen in 30 years. So when short-term bond yields are higher, that means people expect something is going to be happening in the short term. They don't want to go and buy shares. They want to buy bonds because they're safe. So they push the price up. The yield goes down. The yield curve inverts. That is the theory. And every time the yield curve has inverted, a recession in the US has followed. Every time since the 1980s, four yield curve inversions, four recessions, And it's happening again, and it's sticking around for a little while. It certainly doesn't inspire confidence, does it, that speculators are so worried about where to put their money that they're going to put them in bonds where they're going to earn so little. Uh, And in some places, you actually have to pay to earn them. Bond yields are seriously into negative territory in places like France and Germany. So, Steve, does this all signal recession to you, or is it just that shares have got so high People are worried that they're going to crash, and that doesn't necessarily mean a recession is going to follow. Or, or, or what? What do you reckon? Is is in other words, is twenty twenty going to be two thousand and eight all over again? No, no, not definitely not two thousand and eight all over again. That's one thing I'm being emphatic about because the the basic cause of two thousand and eight, as you and I've discussed countless times, and mm. central bankers have never discussed, was a collapse in credit based demand that went in America's case from plus fifteen percent of GDP in 2007 to minus five in 2010. And, uh, and, that, and that was after America got to the highest level of private debt it's ever had in its, in its, its capitalist history. Right. So we don't have that, that problem now, apart yeah. from places, we don't have that now, apart from obviously places like Australia. Well, yeah, we have a number of countries that are in the same. Like, if if you imagine what was happening back in two thousand and eight, uh, one way I can make an analogy about it was somebody running up a hill towards a cliff, uh, and, and you couldn't say when the cliff was going to hit in because that depends upon different countries' economies. But in the case of uh, um, Japan, for example, that cliff was hit at a level of uh, about two hundred percent of GDP, 
of private debt. It finally peaked at two twenty five. There's a there's a difference between running up the hill and and the and the if you you continue rising even even as you as you approach the cliff. Falling off the cliff is where credit demand goes from positive to negative. And in America's case, that happened when private debt was about one hundred and sixty percent of GDP. It then peaked at one hundred and seventy. Now, since then, it's fallen, the level of private that's fallen to about 150%. It's reviving very slowly now as a percentage of GDP. Um, but in a, in a sense, once you've, you, you, you've got pretty much the same level of debt, but about half the level of credit in the sense that the rate of change of debt uh, now, which, is, which I define as credit, is about 7% of GDP. Mm. Uh, back when the crisis hit, it was 15% of GDP. So going from plus seven to minus, uh, uh, to say minus five, is bad, but nothing like going from plus fifteen to minus five. And I don't think they're going to go to minus five anyway. So you don't have the same decline in credit-based demand that you had back in in two thousand. So what's, well, what's going to cause it this time then? Because everyone is in a very different position, aren't they? I mean, yeah. there's uh, if you look at well, look at the United States for example. That they're only, I mean, they're carrying a lot of government debt. Uh, but you, you know, you, you, you indicate many times that that's not really that important in the scheme of things. If you look at Germany, they've, they've got no debt. They're trying to balance their books and they're actually, uh, in bigger trouble than the United States is. Uh, and, uh, look, if we look in the, in the, in the UK, I mean, the Bank of England, you know, are saying if it wasn't for Brexit, they actually be pushing rates up now. So if, if we are heading to a recession, and there's a whole myriad of different reasons, perhaps, as to why it's going to happen, but also, different perceptions of whether it's going to hit their country or not. Yeah, I mean, to, to me, the, uh, the, there are three basic situations the global economy finds itself in. One is what I call, in, in, in Can We Avoid Another Financial Crisis, I call the walking debt of debt. And those are countries like America, Japan, the UK, Spain, uh, which had already had debt crises back in 2007, and private debt was now falling. And those countries, they're carrying such a level of private debt that, you can't you, you can't encourage people to take out debt faster than GDP is growing, and in most of those countries, debt is slowly, slowly falling. Mm. But it means credit-based demand is quite anemic. And if central banks like the like the Fed did do in the last two years, federal banks who don't even take a look at the level of private debt, they completely ignore this particular indicator. Uh, don't don't take a look at it. Their model tells them that with low unemployment there's going to soon be high inflation. So they've got to put up interest rates to stop the high inflation happening. They put the rates up. Nothing actually happens. Inflation continues falling, which, which uh, you know, uh, boggles their minds, but that's that's what's been happening. Um, so they, they what they actually do by putting up the rates is put pressure on people who are currently in debt, uh, which means they're more likely to reduce their debt or go bankrupt. Or it, and it makes people who aren't in debt less likely to take out debt. Mm. So consequently, credit demand goes negative and you fall back into another credit-induced slump, but it's a small one. It's like the ones that Japan was going through after its bubble economy burst back in 1990. It never had a crash like 1990 again, right. but it had stagnation for the whole period. So that's, that's part of the economy. Well, they see being in stagnation. So that's one. Then, yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's and that's 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 the majority, not the majority, but a large part of the global economy because you have that's the United States, it's the UK, it's most of most of Europe, certainly uh, Spain, Portugal, um, uh, southern Europe, France, but you know the, yeah. the, the substantial countries in, and 
then, then there's countries which avoided the crisis back in 2008 by continuing to borrow. So Australia's the, ch- the champion there, but so is Canada's in that list, so is South Korea, uh, a range of other countries, even including places like Norway and Sweden uh, are in that situation. So they can have a, a, de- a, a debt collapse. They can have a private, a private credit crunch. And I think Australia and Canada are certainly having that. Um, so they're going to have it, uh, and there's, when you add them up, there's something like about 20% of the global economy that you could put in that bracket. That's substantial. But that also includes China, and that's another wild card because mm. China uh, has such a level of government spending and no qualms about you know balancing the books and all that sort of nonsense. So they've got the Silk Road project. They've got the infrastructure projects. That is counteracting the impact of the credit. Uh, the third class, so that's like, like the three classes, so I better mention a fourth. The fourth is countries like Europe, which are imply, imposing policies which, are, which they believe are prudent but are actually stagnationist. We should have a good talk about this uh, in a later podcast because Germany's focus on running a, not running a deficit at the government level and preferably running a surplus mm. uh, is one point that modern monetary theory is quite correct on. Uh, and that is that if you do that, the size of the government sector surplus is identical to the rest of the economy deficit. Now, if you're running a, a trade surplus, you can still balance that because the trade surplus brings, I mean, causes domestic money to be created to make up for the money that's being destroyed by the government or taken out of circulation by the government running a surplus. But uh, with Germany's tr- trades, by what I can tell, that's trade surplus is rather anemic compared to past trends. Um, the overall effect of everybody in the economy trying to save money, so households trying to trying um, not to take out debt, and because Germany's household debt levels are quite low and not rising, the government trying to pay down debt, the trade surplus not making up sufficiently for those two actions, the economy is going to go going to decline. Well, I mean, it is, isn't it? It's already, yeah. I mean, it's. It, I mean, there's yeah. a, every chance that it is already in recession in Germany. The German government has actually said, though, uh, well, reports are suggesting that they are going to start pumping money into the economy if they get into a recession, which by, by which time it might be might which be too late by then. Yeah. Uh, why yeah. not do it now? Uh, but yeah. I mean, on on the first one about the the role of central banks, I mean, interest rates have been low everywhere. For a long time, uh, okay, the Fed lifted rates, but they're taking them down again, and they're going to take them down further than they they lifted them. I mean, the move, apart from the Bank of England saying if it wasn't for Brexit, they'd be pushing rates up. I mean, the move generally is down from central banks and has been for a while. Yeah, and we're in a de- what we are in is in a deflationary environment, and this is the. I mean, I'm I'm quite uh, pleased that I called my website debtdeflation.com about uh, what was that about twenty years ago, mm. and uh, because I, here we I, are. The, the one time I've actually ever speculated is when my first wife wanted to buy a property and I made, I made the mistake of saying I, we're in a bubble and I refused to write a bubble. That was 1997. God knows how much we would have made on a property <laughs> speculation back then in Sydney. Um, but I bought bonds in the belief that, gov- that interest rates would fall. Yeah, and, and like I had a debate with an Austrian economist at the time, you know, who of course all are basically seeing inflation coming out of government spending and I was saying, look, I'm sorry, the tendency I see is deflation. And he said, well, have you put any money on it? And I said, yes, I bought 200,000 bucks of government bonds. Unleave it, of course, typical me. And uh, by the time I sold them, they gained about $30,000 in, in value. They would be up about 60, 70 now if I held them for longer. Um, so I, I, this is something which comes out of Minsky's financial instability hypothesis, not, not as Minsky wrote it, because he actually was writing predominantly during the 
uh, the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s, and he saw the huge inflation that occurred pre-Vockler coming into power, and he basically extrapolated that forward, thinking inflation would be the result of government spending uh, making up for private sector declines. Uh, but, of course, two major things happened that upset that apple cart. One was, of course, China coming onto the market, which is itself a massive deflationary shock to the capitalist economy because suddenly a, a non-capitalist economy with incredibly low uh, living standards uh, becomes a producer on the global market and it cuts all, all um, mm. industrial countries' prices. That, that helps. But when I put the maths together of Minsky's hypothesis in a, a complex systems model and included prices, before I included prices in it, one of the trends that came out of the rising level of private debt was a falling wages share of GDP. And that's it's absolutely locks locks lockstep. So if the debt level goes up, private debt, the worker share goes down. Even though in my model it was firms doing the borrowing and not not the workers. So what it's, we could get get a bit hairy explaining that one. Maybe that's one one for another day as well. But that wages share maps directly across to the rate of inflation. And when I put when I built a model including prices, I got deflation coming out of that and it infl- inf- in the, the inflation rate getting down to minus one, minus two percent. Now in that situation, if you've got negative inflation uh, of minus one and minus two, um, then and if you're in, in the aggregate if you actually have declining GDP as well. But if negative inflation like that is a good reason to hang on to bonds that give a slightly higher yield, even if it might be low or negative. Mm. Um, so but we're not, not quite there yet, though, are we? I we're mean, not we, quite there yet. Well, I mean, no, we don't have rampant inflation. We still have some inflation, but I mean, admittedly, you know, it's the lowest it's been for a long, long time. Yeah. People are and still the, buying. There's still consumer confidence. Retail sales are holding up in the US, in the UK, and many other places as well. It doesn't feel like we're on the verge of a recession if you look at... Uh, no, and I, I, don't think, I don't think it's a recession. It's not a, it's not a crisis on the scale of 2008 because mm. there will be some cutback in credit-based demand. There will be uh, workers... Wage rises haven't come through, so people are carrying, you know, in the real world, people are carrying household debt, credit card debt, and things of that nature. They, it's, it makes them less likely to spend the money they currently have, so the velocity of circulation plunges. And that's where you look at the empirical data, one of my favourite charts, um, which you can all people can find by going to the St. Louis Fred site, which is a marvellous, mm. marvellous website. Go to the St. Louis Fred um, it's actually Federal Reserve Economic Data, so they call it FRED, probably one of the best acronyms going. Um, and there's a thing called Money of Zero uh, Money of zero Maturity, MZM, and I look for the velocity of MZM and you'll take a look at a, quite a striking chart, one that I really want to um, get into analyse properly uh, one of these days when I have time, uh, and you'll see that the velocity of circulation of money of zero maturity is now 1.33, meaning uh, if you have a billion dollars, it turns over uh, 1.33 times a year, so it creates $1.3 billion worth of demand. If you go back to the uh, pre-inflation periods in 1960s, 1965, it turned to about 1.8 times, so a, a billion dollars worth of money to created $1.8 billion worth of GDP. And if you go to the high inflation period before Vokler hit the brakes back in 1981, it turned over three and a half times. So $1 trillion created $3.5 trillion worth of GDP. Mm. Now we've been in a downward trend ever since. And we've uh, argued many times, you've argued many times, that that is because so much more money now is finding itself in the finance sector. And uh, and so it ticks over slower there than it does if, if it's in a sort of general trading environment, buying and, and selling stuff. 
and at the same time, people are carrying so much debt that they are cautious about spending. Mm. Yeah. But where the individual caution about spending translates into a fall in GDP. And this is one of the most important points that I've derived in, in the brief work in the last few years on the role of credit in aggregate demand. And this is one where I'm completely consistent with Richard Werner, who derived the argument earlier than I did with uh, a different form of logic. And that is that credit adds to aggregate demand and aggregate income. Uh, when you live in a world in which banks create money, which of course, we, that's the world we do live in, not the one that neoclassicals inhabit in their textbooks, but the real world, um, credit adds to spending power by, in, if you have, in, the government, the, the bank gives you a loan, it's assets-wise by as much as the new loan. The new loan, you don't buy, take out the loan for the sheer pleasure of being in debt, you spend the money you borrowed, you're buying a house, you're buying a, you know, you're buying a, a video, um, you're buying a, you know, a I'd better say a tape recorder. That's going to age me, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I've heard. About, yeah, go, go to the Science Museum, kids. Let's just go on that. Yeah, that's true. You're buying a 100-inch 100, 100 uh, uh, diagonal TV. Um, you swipe your credit card. That creates additional debt on your uh, on your liability side. On the asset side of the person, the company you bought it off, it creates money. And then on the, the, for the banking sector, it's creating an asset, which is the debt you now owe to the banking sector. So that expenditure is expenditure for you. It is income for the, for the company you bought the 100-inch screen off. And that process can go into reverse as well. When you pay money off, you're reducing the amount of money in circulation by precisely as much as you reduce your debt. Money which would have, could have been spent is now used to cancel outstanding debt. So credit's part of aggregate demand. And if you have this uh, world in which people aren't willing to take out the credit, then part of aggregate demand is lower. So is how much of, because uh, you haven't given, you mentioned China briefly, but you haven't in, in your list of three reasons, you didn't give the one that many analysts are blaming on all of this, which is Donald Trump's trade war. Because, uh, I mean, that's stymied investment, not just in China and the US, but in Europe too. And we've got industrial production has fallen in all those places. So manufacturing has been hit, hit hard. And it has to be in part because of this trade war, because either that or it's just a massive coincidence, because the worse that trade war has got, the more cautious industry has become, quite naturally. Yeah, the other side of it, and this is the question of how far it's going, are American corporations getting sick and tired of having the supply chains disrupted and are they investing domestically to uh, replace overseas production? Or are they, in cases of Vietnam benefiting right now, are they moving out of China? Mm. So there are there are some countervailing factors there. But, yeah, it, it's... It, 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 you've got a you've got a bull not just in the China shop but <laughs> in the entire suburb, and uh, and that's the danger that that is adding to it. I don't that is that is certainly contributing, but I, I to me that's a I wouldn't I guess I would call it second order compared to what's happening with credit demand. Right, because I mean it, it I mean the significance of China I mean and and what's happening because a quarter of U.S. imports come from China. Mm. So, and if if that reduces as it is with this ta tariff battle going on, then um, I mean the the idea is that it somehow is instantaneously going to be replaced by goods made at home, but surely it means that's not going to happen. Obviously, surely it just it's, means it's consumption exactly is going to go down, and that's that's going to lead to to a downturn. Yeah, so I think Trump is definitely contributing to it, but I think that the overall background is this, this you know debt trap we've got ourselves in that central banks aren't even aware of when they put rates up. Yeah, so this gives us this deflationary environment. So, what's the answer then? What do what do we do? Central banks can't lower interest rates, really, can they? Well, they, they can, but does it really make too much difference? Because if we look at uh, just before the two thousand and eight um, crash, 
interest rates were in the United States were at 5.25%. So there's a huge amount of room for movement. Now they're at mm-hmm. two and a quarter percent. They're probably going to get down to one and a half percent by the end of the uh, end of the year, mm-hmm. early next year. So there's not a lot of room for movement. And then, of course, if you look in the UK, it's down to uh, three quarters of a percent already. And it's uh, in negative territory in, in France and Germany and, and, and other parts of the world. So what can central banks do to try and adapt to all of this? And is, is moving interest rates the right thing anyway? No, this is the thing. What you need is one of well, in the conventional sense, what you need is massive fiscal stimulus, yeah. uh, which Germany is finally contemplating after years of believing that it would be. This this is one thing people tend to forget. You do not impose an economic policy because you think pain is good for you in the future. You impose it because you think you're going to have a better situation in the future. So Germany choosing to target a balanced budget of the government and preferably surpluses was supposed to have the impact that Germany would be growing more rapidly than the rest of the world. In fact, it's having the impact of going into a recession. Now, the ideology will change. They'll talk about how it's, you know, you have to be responsible. And yes, responsibility has costs. No, responsibility was supposed to lead to achievements, but they'll reverse the rhetoric, I'm sure. So what about China then? Because are they going to, because the first global, you know, the global financial crisis, 2008, had very little impact on China um, because well, it actually had a lot, it had a large impact, but it counted it very rapidly. People tend to forget this because it was so so dramatic and so fast. Because when the crisis hit, I, I remember I can't actually quote uh, chapter and verse on this, but I remember reading that when the crisis hit in two thousand and eight, over about a year, China's exports fell by about forty percent. Yeah. 40, I think it was forty-six percent is the figure that sticks in my mind. Now, what that meant was there was a massive migration of workers from the coastal cities back to the countryside because in China you have to be registered somewhere to which you get uh, uh, what, it, what what passes for social security. You're registered in your commune or your communal area, uh, which were a huge number of the workers in the coastal cities during the boom was back in the provinces, um, and of course the provinces are doing fine because. You know, they're getting, they're, getting, they're getting government subsidies to make up for that. They haven't got the industrial um, sectors that the coastal cities have. Suddenly you have 40, 50 million people uh, coming back because they, they're, getting, they're, getting no, they're being sacked on the, on the coastal cities. They can't stay there because they'll get zero income. They've got to hop on the trains and go back, uh, back into the countryside again. That huge um, exodus of very angry people uh, was, was why China went rapidly for the huge credit stimulus that began back in, in 2009, 2010, mm. when it basically told us banks lend to anybody with a pulse, and we got the phenomenon of ghost cities being built all through China. Right. But they're still doing that, of course, aren't they? I mean, their, their whole approach is to, uh, to try and offset the impact of the trade war by making loans more available to try and uh, uh, boost in- investment in, in business. I wonder if that's going to be enough. And if, if it's not, and we are starting to see signs of a downturn, I and mean, when we used to say, look, when the US economy sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold, I think that's changed now, isn't it? It's when China sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold. Well, fact, I'm so, looking, I'm this, looking at Chinese could, data right now from the Bank of International Settlements, and as much as you can trust the data, uh, the level of credit-based demand in China peaked at 40% of GDP, mm. 4-0. That is the data I'm reading right now, 40% of GDP. Um, it went. That was back in about, I and mean, my graphs are a bit inaccurate. This is a new software package I'm working on, so I can't actually give you the precise data, but that's about 2010. Um, down, back up again, heading down again. Now it's about 20% of GDP. Now, that's still an enormous amount of demand, but 20% is a hell of a lot less than 40%. We are getting a credit-based slowdown in China. 
Um, the question is, to what extent is that counteracted by the government spending? So the obvious answer is more than Germany, but uh, whether it's enough to mean that China's overall contribution to demand for goods from the rest of the world uh, is is positive or negative in terms of the change, I'm not really sure. Well, then there's the interesting thing as well, isn't there? Because China is demanding more from the rest of the world. I mean, it used to be very much a, an export-based economy, uh, and uh, and now its domestic consumption is rising. And so the, the net trade surplus, which was 8% of GDP in 2008, is now just 1.3%. So, you know, in short... It's a huge they, change. Yeah. A massive change. I mean, now they, uh, they make their own stuff. They consume their own stuff. Uh, I mean, do they do they need us, and do they actually have that same influence in the rest of the world? I mean, are they sort of building almost like a more of a closed ecosystem because they're looking after themselves so much? Well, I mean, they're not so much a closed ecosystem; they're actually less closed by the fact that their their trade surplus has fallen. Mm. In that sense, I mean, when you have a trade surplus like that, you insulate yourself from what's happening in the rest of the world. When your trade surplus falls, which has happened to Germany uh, and apparently well as Japan, then you're more exposed to what's happening in the rest of the planet. So. Um, they're having less power, but uh, I'd say more influence. So, how do we avoid this happening, or, or is it just is it just going to happen? And who and who is who's going to feel it the worst? And, and well, my, let's come back to what we're talking about, which is that there are going to be a global recession. Uh, I can see a slowdown in America. Maybe I mean I did say back in when I wrote, uh, can we avoid another financial crisis? I expected a, a recession in America in two thousand and uh, no, two thousand and twenty during the election campaign. Um, because I thought that the central banks would do precisely what they've done, put up interest rates to, to try to spike off inflation, which didn't happen, uh, cause a credit-based slowdown instead, and then have to go into reverse to, uh, to counter it. So all that has actually happened. Um, as I expected, right. what, but Donald Trump has protected himself against that during the next election Donald, by by saying, "Hey, look, I, you know, he can say, well, I've been telling them they, we should have had a one percent drop in, uh, in in interest rates. They should have gone a lot further. They were too slow. So he can blame well, he can blame the Fed if there's a slowdown. And, and I also I hate to say, but <laughs> in the book, I also predicted that Trump would make his next election campaign against the Fed rather than against his mm. Democratic rivals, mm. which is what he's doing. But we'll, I'm I'm sort of a fifty fifty on whether I think America will actually have a recession now because the scale of spending that he's triggered, uh, even though the tax cuts have gone to the wrong people as well, all that sort of stuff counteracts the, the private sector downturn. Uh, but certainly, it, it's nothing like 2008. But in terms of some countries around the world, yes, there will be recessions, countries like Australia, Canada, uh, potentially the other countries that have got a huge debt bubble, including France. Um, I'd put France in there as well as um um, Sweden, Norway, just, um, these are countries I remember after looking at data in, in front of me right now. Um, so there's a number of countries I would expect to have a, uh, have a recession. Um, adding up to the global scale, a global recession, I think a bit like the old saying about the Parsons egg, it's, it's, it's good in parts. There'll be some parts of the world that don't have a recession, but plenty are going to have one for one of those three factors, either they're there's the central banks, the, the governments aren't stimulating the economies enough because they're relying upon the central bank that don't have the ammunition anymore, uh, if they ever really did, in terms of interest rates affecting economic activity. Um, you have the country that are going to have a recession because they boomed their way through the last crisis by borrowing more private sector debt, or you're going to have the countries which are in stagnation and can be easily triggered into a downturn, which could be America. Uh, yeah, yeah. So you haven't mentioned Europe, and yet you know Germany is the closest Europe to it. Europe is self-inflicted. Europe is self-inflicted, and this is the danger that a uh, Germany. The ironic thing is Germany is the overall beneficiary, the design of the euro, and yet it's yeah. having a recession, mm. and that just shows how crazy its focus upon 
uh, balancing the government books is. Yeah, but they, I mean, they can they can be they can be in recession, but everyone's still a lot better off than people living in the south of Europe, of course. I mean, it's well, that, that's uh, terrible. I mean, that's uh, disastrous. I mean, you know, I know programmers are now being uh, charging themselves out like this is guys with PhDs in the south, southern European countries at rates like ten to fifteen euro an hour. Mm. Those are the sort of rates you used to expect to get when you hired Indian programmers. So, um, so this is it, isn't it? We can get yeah. a bit too hung up on the on the recession word and say it's awful that countries are going into recession. Uh, the other ones might be not be going into recession, but they're they're growing so slowly and wages yeah. are so suppressed. Like the UK might avoid a recession, but you still got a record number of people going to food banks to uh, to get fed. Uh, so yeah. it's not exactly a sign of a healthy economy, is it? No, and this is the, I mean, we've seen a, a certainly seen a slowdown in the overall global rate of growth over time as well. If you go back to um, 1950s America, then you saw an average growth rate in real terms of of the order of between three and five percent. Um, and if you do the trend over time, it goes from about five percent down to about about two percent, one percent now. Um, now I would attribute a lot of this to the impact of rising private debt on the other side, but equally there are things like you know, in terms of energy, we know the cost of energy is getting to be higher. With the higher cost of getting energy out, you can't produce as much. Uh, if, if, you know, I won't call it a surplus, but you, you can't convert as much of that energy into goods as you could beforehand. Your real, your capacity to generate a growing real standard of living is declining for a whole range of reasons, all coming together at once. And in the middle of all that, um, people are looking at long-term yields and thinking, where is where is safety in long term yields? They're willing to buy the government bonds to get that, mm. um, and you and you're locking in a long term, not a gain, but a long term uh, minimization of potential loss. And bang, you start getting you now negative rates and and the inverted yield curve. Right, but what you've just described there doesn't sound like a, a, a temporary problem. I mean, you think of a recession, you go into a recession, you get out of a recession, you go in cycles. But what you're describing is stagnation. Is, is, is stagnation. We're, 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 yeah, so, yeah. I mean, and you're saying the root cause of all of that is the fact that we're just not. Uh, uh, energy just isn't as, as as cheap, and it's not as plentiful to try and do, 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 give us the growth that we've been used to in the past. So get used to it. This is the new well, normal. There's two elements. One, one is the, the credit one is the one that overall I'm, I'm saying I have to make a strong argument on credit because I've got the data in front of me and so on. So, yes, we're not going to ever get a credit stimulus before like we got between the 1950s and the 1970s and occasionally got after that uh, as, as before the, the bursting of the bubble in 2008. We're not going to get that again because we're carrying such a level of private debt around the world that credit growth, which is the credit which I define as the rate of growth of private mm. debt, will never be substantial once more. Unless, so unless we have a uh, a moratorium on debt, unless we just write it all you, off and you have start to write it, it off. Yeah. The, in my, my case, the being the only way out of this is, is an accounting exercise in writing off the debt, which we have the capability of doing of modern debt jubilee. But the other side of it, of course, the the, the ecological one coming as well. Then yes, that's that's uh, going to have more of an impact. You're not simply getting the same physical productivity out of your economy either. And of course, to me, the real danger is that's that's the good news. The bad news is when we realise just how much we've stuffed up this planet, yeah. and and either we have to go into reverse or the system goes in reverse on us. So, so I, it seems like whatever central banks do now, then they, we, we, it's going to be ineffective. So we've got, I mean, because they can't move interest rates lower, as we've said, because they're already you know in negative territory in lots of places. So the ECB, for example, you know, we've we've, we've been hearing that you know rumours that uh, next month we can expect a uh, bazooka 
of uh, of stimulus from the uh, from the ECB, including uh, they can't cut interest rates too much, but more you know going back to quantitative easing, perhaps perhaps in a big way, it's probably not going to make too much difference then. Well, quantitative easing is part of the problem, and because it is a very, very expensive way of getting a stimulus. Not that I can since the government has an unlimited capacity to create money. So, but if you want to have a you know, create money and have an impact, then what you do is you give money to the poor, because they're they're going to spend everything. Okay, yeah. it's going to end up in the shop straight away if you give it to be if you give a you know a. a a universal basic income or a tax a tax rebate, which was Australia's trick back in the 2008 crisis. Yeah. Uh, if it goes to the to the average person, or it'd be even better, goes to the poor, then bang, it'll get spent. It turns up as expenditure straight away. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately and- for Australia, let's just look at that. I mean, because there was the argument, wasn't there? A lot of it went to Harvey Norman, the retail store, because the, there was a lot of demand for flat screen TVs at the time, so which went to China. So it yeah. went to China, yeah, exactly. Well, it goes overseas. Um, that's one of the dangers of a of, of a open economies and also not having a manufacturing sector, which is Australia's special special talent. Um, but yeah, it, it's there is no way that the central banks themselves can stimulate it. But at the same time, you have a mindset, and this is where the, the danger of economics, mainstream economics, becomes so obvious. Um, mainstream economists really believe that they can control the economy using the interest rate. This is the whole idea of DSGE models. That uh, and the fundamental thing about the, these particular models versus uh, the type of models economists did before they got taken over by the rational expectation mob is that they've actually included the central bank as part of the model. And the central bank follows what they used to call a Taylor rule. And that is that whenever there was sort of a 2% rate of inflation as being the norm and wage demands driving inflation rate up. So the story was you should move interest rates roughly twice as fast as wages were changing to keep you around this 2% rate of inflation. And then with the 2% rate of inflation, went a 3% rate of economic growth and a 4% rate of interest, two, three, four. Yeah. Now, none of this is working for them. So that's why they've gone to QE, which massively simulates the rich and drives up asset prices. It doesn't put a lot. It puts some money, but a lot of money into the domestic economy. Uh, negative interest rates they're playing with as well, but the negative rates are they can only impose those on on the deposit accounts of banks at the central bank with the reserve accounts. Nonetheless, we apparently have negative interest rates on mortgages in Denmark, which really really does twist my mind. Um, but. Those are the only tools they've got, and otherwise they're floundering. Now we could mm. say there's another lever over there called the private debt level. Pull it down, you know, do, the, do, do something to reduce the private debt level. Huh? Why should we touch that lever? Yeah. According to our theory, it doesn't affect the economy. Oh, for God's bloody I, sake! But it does affect the way that the exactly. bank, not central banks, but retail banks issue uh, issue out loans, doesn't it? Absolutely. Because because yeah, I, yeah, I, I look at it, I, you know, I'm just I'm just in the process of taking out a loan to to buy a house. There's only yeah. one company, one bank that would give me a loan in. Uh, uh, in in the UK, because they're also fearful, because they look at you know here's 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 a man in his fifties who's working for himself. Okay, he can provide bank statements for the last ten years to show that he's uh, earned an okay living doing what he's doing. Mm. Um, but I'm too big a risk. Yeah, uh, and, and and this this conservatism about debt is because there's too much debt. Yeah, and the only way to get over it is to write the debt off. We have the capability; the, the state can create money, as it's done for QE. It could create it from modern debt jubilee, where the money was given to the public in a per capita way. Uh, with uh, the, the, those in debt getters, it's a debt offset account. Those that don't have debt get money they can spend, 
all money they have to use to buy corporate shares that have been issued specifically to reduce corporate debt. This could be done, yeah. uh, but they won't consider it because in the very first instance, their theory tells them the level of private debt and the level of credit don't matter. And yet and they look at China, where China is, you know, their, their big stimulus at the moment is is obviously to try and make it easier for banks to lend. Uh, so bank lending accounted for half of the GDP in uh, in, in China in, in 2009. Mm. But the problem was that went into, you know, as we've seen here and elsewhere, if you make it easier to borrow, people put it into housing and they put it into the stock market. Uh, it, yeah, it, so you, when they when that's all that happened in China in 2009, they had yeah. this big, made a lot easier to, uh, to borrow money from banks and the stock market went up. Yeah, yeah. So we we have a, basically, it isn't just we have an economic problem, we have a theoretical problem. Mm. And that is the people in charge of central banks and treasuries and the people advising the, the mainstream economists around the world live in a world, understand a world that, that doesn't exist and are therefore ignoring crucial data in the world that does we do live in, which is this role of private debt and also, I have got to say, also the role of energy. And leaving those two major factors out You've got people who haven't got a clue what they're doing, and you end up in the situation we are now of them floundering around trying uh, the only tools they have got, which is pushing reserve rates even lower and quantitative easing. And the only one which actually has any major effect upon the real economy is quantitative easing. It's a very expensive way of doing it. It makes the wealthy even wealthier, which is not exactly a solution to the problems we had back in 2008, but that's, that's where they head. And then we just live in stagnation and political conflict as a result. Forever. Uh, amen. Uh, that's, that's the world we live in. So, okay. So, so I don't see a recession, but I don't exactly see happy times ahead either. Right. More of the, more of the same, in other words. Uh, yeah. All right. Uh, very good, Steve. We always get back to uh, debt, don't we? Wherever we start. I wish uh, we didn't have to, but I'm the only person <laughs> talking about it, apart from Richard Werner. I will look next time. Let's see how you can bring debt into our discussion about how Britain can be more entrepreneurial. Maybe we can do that without using the, uh, the debt word too much. Uh, we'll do that next week. Good to talk, Steve. Okay, bye, Matt. Yeah, next time, uh, we are going to be looking at how we can, in a post-Brexit world, make Britain more entrepreneurial, uh, given that, you know, we have uh, we have to make the best of a bad job. Well, it depends on what your attitude is. I think it's going to be a disaster, personally. Steve isn't convinced. Uh, but look, it is an opportunity for us to remove the shackles placed on us by Europe. And so how is Britain going to lift itself out of the quagmire it is apparently in at the moment? Uh, we'll find out next week. Uh, we'll no doubt come to blows on that one. That's next week on the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. I'll see you then. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.